Welcome to the PA Books podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. While the focus is always on Pennsylvania, topics like the Revolutionary War, the Battle of Gettysburg, the Industrial Revolution, the coal and steel industries, and authors like John Updike, David McCullough, and John Grogan have a universal appeal. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, Ronald Schaefer, author of The Carnival Campaign. Ronald Schaefer, author of The Carnival Campaign, How the Rollicking 1840 Campaign of Tippecanoe and Tyler II Changed Presidential Elections Forever. Can you explain where we're sitting right now? We're sitting here in the Zeon Lutheran Church in Harrisburg, uh, Pennsylvania. And what's exciting is that this is where Harrison was nominated. Right here where we're sitting, the, the delegates were here. Uh, the church was pretty new because it had burned down a couple years before and they rebuilt it. Uh, and they, the Whig party held their first convention right here. Uh, they picked this place because uh, a lot of the delegates were from Washington, D.C. And Harrisburg had just opened a brand new uh, train station. So there was train connection between the two cities. Although at least one delegate for Harrison rode his horse from Ohio about 400 miles. So uh, he probably was a little tired when he got here. But this is exactly uh, where it all began in uh, December of 1839. So you said the Whig Party. What was the Whig Party? The Whig Party was formed uh, as a response to uh, President Andrew Jackson. Uh, the Whigs is what, the, when the revolutionary, uh, revolution started, uh, the revolutionary people called themselves Whigs uh, against uh, King George. And so they adopted that name because they were against King Andrew. So that, and they were a real wild bunch. They, they were like farmers, but they were bankers. So they really didn't agree on much, except they, they didn't like uh, Andrew Jackson. Were they regional? They were across the country. Uh, and it just depended. Uh, there were bankers from New York, and there were farmers from the West. Uh, Harrison was from Ohio, although he was born in Virginia. But he lived most of his life uh, at uh, North Bend uh, near Cincinnati. Uh, the other major candidate was Henry Clay, who was the great senator from Kentucky. And the third candidate was uh, General Winfield Scott. He was known as Old Fuss and Feathers. What did it take to be a candidate then? I mean, how, what did it mean? Well, the most important thing was to pretend you weren't running for president. Uh, it, was, it was considered to be very unseemly to be campaigned for yourself. Nobody, presidents, Presidential candidates didn't campaign. They, it was never done before. So Harrison wasn't here. Clay wasn't here. Scott wasn't here. Uh, they were far away, and there was no television. There was no telegraph. So they had no idea what was going on here. And uh, they had people here on their behalf, but uh, uh, they didn't know what was going on, and Harrison really didn't find out until two weeks later. Two weeks later? Two weeks. It, they. It took them five votes here, because when they came in, uh, Clay was the favorite. He was the famous statesman. Uh, he was the guy who that year had said, I'd rather be right than be president. Uh, he really didn't mean that. He'd rather be president than just about anything. And he figured he was going to win. He was waiting back in Washington, DC. Um, 
And he was ahead on the first couple ballots, but he didn't have enough to win the nomination. So then started the, the, the backdoor finagling. They would go around the bars in the smoke-filled rooms. Uh, and one of the big uh, backers of Harrison was Thaddeus Stevens, the big uh, Pennsylvania politician. Uh, I mean, if you saw the movie Lincoln, he was the guy that Tommy Lee Jones played that helped Lincoln uh, get the amendment abolishing slavery. So he was the big Harrison guy because he thought he had been promised a, a cabinet post in the Harrison administration. But so this went on and Harrison moved up. The next couple, he was just behind Clay, but he didn't have enough votes yet because Scott was still getting enough to kind of block them. So. Uh, uh, Stevens had this trick up his sleeve. He had a letter from Scott supporting the abolitionists, which was considered very, very uh, uh, wild and liberal at that time. Was they it were, a real letter or a fake letter? It was an actual letter that he had written to a senator, and somehow uh, Stevens got a hold of it. So he went over to uh, the Virginia delegation, a very anti, very pro-slavery delegation, and they were backing Clay, but they figured, well, it looks like Clay's not going to make it, so maybe we'll back Scott. So he goes over there with this letter from Scott, and he just casually drops it on the ground, you know. Uh, and, of course, it is immediately found by the delegates, and they're alarmed that, that Scott is supporting the abolitionists. So they go to Harrison, and that starts a stampede for Harrison. And late that night, Harrison wins the nomination, uh, and he is going to be the nominee for the Whigs in 1840. Now, if you were sitting in this room in December, you said 1839, while the convention was going on, right. what would you have seen? You would have seen uh, all men, because all the delegates were men, because only men could vote, of course, in, in those days. Uh, they were from 22 of the 26 states at the time. They would be pretty dressed up. Uh, you know, they would have big high collars with ties. Uh, they would have long sideburns. and. Um, uh, they would basically be uh, very formal here, but most of the action, as we said, went on behind the scenes in the bars and the hotel rooms. So at night, there was a lot of conversation going on uh, on swapping votes and so forth until finally Harrison got the uh, nomination. Were there a lot of speeches like we see in conventions now, speech after speech? You didn't see too many speeches un until it was over, basically. Um, of course, the, the nominee didn't give an acceptance speech because he wasn't here. So he had his campaign manager, which was a judge who had known him for 40 years, give a speech afterwards accepting the nomination. And he seemed to spend most of his time, you gotta remember that Harrison was 67 years old. And he was the oldest man at that time ever to run for president, and the oldest until Ronald Reagan. And um, so his, uh, his friend basically seemed, uh, his purpose was to uh, convince people that uh, Harrison was still sound of mind, even though he was 67 years old. So much of his speech was saying, oh yes, he still has a great mind, just, just as he was as a young man. And uh, uh, the main concern would be, was that whether this old man could really run for president. But there was still, still a lot of concern about Clay because uh, they needed the votes of the uh, Clay people to win the election. So they, they looked for a Clay supporter as a vice presidential candidate. Nobody wanted the job because the vice president had nothing to do. And uh, finally, uh, John Tyler of Virginia said he would take it, sort of drew the short straw. 
he had just, he had been a Democrat till about two or three months before, but then he quit the party because he didn't like Andrew Jackson. So he, he accepted the nomination. Harrison had no idea who his running mate was going to be, although as it turns out, Tyler grew up right down the road from him in Virginia. I learned from your book that they were cousins. They were cousins, actually. Uh, they weren't boyhood, boyhood friends because uh, uh, Tyler was only about 50 years old, so Harrison was older. But the families intermingled all the time. The fathers actually ran against each other in campaigns. So they knew each, the families knew each other very well. Uh, but so Tyler is his running mate. And uh, as I said, um, he didn't find out about this. The first guy to find out about it was Clay because he was in Washington. And the day after the convention, I, first I should explain at the convention, after it was all over, Clay had written a letter saying, if I don't get the nomination, read this letter. So the letter was, if I don't get it, support whoever it is because we have to be united. And everybody said, oh, what a great man. And they all went home united. Well, uh, Clay is waiting uh, in Washington and he starts drinking at a bar. And then he goes across the street to his boarding house and he sits and waits. Pretty soon his friends come in from the train station. They had just met some people who had gotten back and they said, you didn't get it. So Harrison, the magnanimous Harrison, jumps up, starts running around the room, shouting and yelling and saying, my friends aren't worth a shot it would take to kill them. I'm the most uh, uh, unhappy man in the world. Oh, Clay and, said that? Yeah. Uh -huh. And uh, he was beside himself because he did not get the not get the nomination. Uh, eventually, he, he came around because uh, Harrison, uh, when he finally got the word, said he would only run for one term. So Clay knew that if he supported Harrison and he won, he would probably get nominated the next time around. Now, a little bit about William Henry Harrison. Uh, most of people know just that he was called Tippecanoe. They know two things. He was called uh, Tippecanoe and that he died when he became president. But he, was, uh, he had been the governor of Indiana. Uh, when he was a young man, about 18 years old, uh, his father died. His father was a signer of the Declaration of Independence, Benjamin Harrison. Yes, you say, if I could read this for a second, you say, Billy Harrison, William Henry Harrison, grew up listening to political conversations by visitors who included such Virginia movers and shakers as George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, Patrick Henry, and James Madison. Exactly. Those are all his, his uh, dad's buddies. So his father dies. He needs, he didn't inherit the house because he was the youngest. He got a little property, so he needed to find a job. Uh, and uh, so his, on his resume, the, the people who he went to were the, some of the founding fathers. And the first one was President George Washington, who made him an officer at the age of 18 in the Army. And he went to Ohio to fight Indians, which is what he wanted to do. Uh, and he went to Cincinnati, which was like seven or eight uh, buildings at the time, and joined the Army of uh, Mad Anthony Rain Wayne. He got married there. And then he was looking for a higher paying job. And uh, another old friend, President John Adams now, uh, appoints him as the uh, governor of the Indiana Territory, which is a big job. Indiana Territory was not just Indiana. It went all the way out to like towards you know, Louisiana, Minnesota and everything. Uh, and then when Adams is defeated for president, the new president is Thomas Jefferson. Well, he's another old family friend. So he reappoints. 
uh, Harrison uh, to uh, be the governor, and, and Harrison builds his huge house in Indiana for the governor's mansion. Uh, he has sold some property, has lots of money, and has lots of kids, too, because he's raising kids. So he runs into problems. He's mainly buying property from the Indians for the United States at Jefferson's request. He runs into these, this guy who doesn't uh, believe in selling Indian property, a guy named Tecumseh, the great Indian chief. Uh, and Tecumseh and his brother start a little town down uh, near Lafayette, Indiana, where they bring in other tribes and they start causing a little trouble. So Harrison decides he's going to take care of that. So he gets some troops up and he goes down and they have the Battle of Tippecanoe at the Tippecanoe River. And after that battle is won, he becomes known as Old Tippecanoe. Uh, and from then on, the hero of Tippecanoe. Uh, and then... The, did, did he show particular bravery or innovation or anything at the Battle of Tippecanoe? Uh, yes, he did. The, the, uh, uh, the battle, he lost a lot of men, and some people consider it more of a loss than, than a win, but he did wipe out the village. Uh, but in battle, he, uh, he had his horse nearly shot out from under him, and uh, he, he uh, rallied his troops. Uh, there was a rumor that he had been killed. Uh, and then he shows up and uh, gets his troops going again, and they give him three cheers. And uh, so overall, yeah, he was, he was known to be very cool in battle. So cool that uh, when the War of 1812 broke out, they needed a general to lead the army, and the president now was James Madison, another old friend of his father. So Madison appoints him ahead of the army in 1812, and he wins the Battle of the Thames uh, near Canada, uh, in which uh, the, the English had uh, it, the Native Americans helping them, including Tecumseh. And Tecumseh was killed in this battle, and that victory there pretty much ended the threat from Canada in the War of 1812, and once again, Harrison was a big hero uh, as the uh, hero of the Thames, although he quit right after that because the, uh, his boss wanted to send him some little outpost where he didn't have anything to do because they had personal problems between them. But yet, in battle, he, he's considered not one of your great generals of all time, but a brave man, and he, he served honorably uh, according to all the people who served under him. And he ran for president uh, four years prior to this election. He did. He ran in 1836. He had long since, uh, he had a couple stints in Congress, but he had long since retired, in effect, to uh, North Bend, his farm there. And uh, in 1836, the Whigs decided the strategy uh, was to not have one presidential candidate, but to have uh, one for every region, for four different regions, in the hopes that together, these candidates would get enough vote for the Whig Party to take over. I don't know who they would have made the president, but anyway, the whole idea was to defeat, uh, this time Martin Van Buren was running. He was the protege of, of uh, Andrew Jackson. But it didn't work. The, uh, uh, Van Buren won the election, and uh, so this time they decided to go with only one candidate. Uh, you, you say um, in here that uh, William Henry Harrison didn't bother saying anything about issues, claiming that because of his long public service, everybody already knew his views, which they didn't. Exactly. He had, as I said, he had served in Congress uh, soon after, his, uh, uh, after the war ended. He was still famous, so he, he served in the House and uh, eventually got himself a spot in the Senate. And, but as his fame waned, he couldn't win election anymore, so he went back to his farm. But anyway, during these times, he, had, he was on the record for several things, and his view was that uh, if you want to know what I 
believe, all you got to do is go back and look at the record. And he said, what intelligent man could ask for anything more than that? So he, he didn't feel a need to really uh, pin down uh, his views on any kind of issue, and he pretty much didn't throughout the campaign. Now, so he got the nomination, and he was running against incumbent Martin Van Buren. What, what should we know about Martin Van Buren? Well, Martin Van Buren, as I said, was a protege of uh, Jackson, but he was totally different. Jackson, of course, was this vibrant guy who got mad all the time and fought in duels. Uh, Van Buren was the first uh, uh, professional politician to become president. He was from old Kinderhook, New York, and uh, he was very calculating, and he would always figure out who was on the right side and make sure he was on that side, you know. Uh, it was the Davy Crockett, the great frontiersman, was a congressman, and he wrote a book about Van Buren that was very anti-Van Buren. He said, it's the only man who could uh, 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 laugh and frown at the same time. You say in your book that the Whigs claimed that Van Buren doused his sideburns with expensive imported French cologne. They called him Sweet Sandy Whiskers and said he was no friend of the common man. Exactly. Um, Van Buren grew up very poor, a very poor family. Uh, but he went to work for an attorney who said, well, you know, if you're going to succeed, you're going to have to dress better. So he did it all the way, and he was, he was known as a real dandy as a dresser. Uh, and uh, again, Davy Crockett uh, had some remark about he wears a corset just like the women do. And the only reason you couldn't tell he wasn't a woman is that he had these uh, long uh, sideburns that went down the side of his head. Uh, and so, yeah, he was known as, as a very good dresser. He had a big he had a big coach that he was driven around in Washington. He had fancy parties uh, at the White House. That what happened to him? His problem was there, there was the Panic of 1837 which was a huge depression. It was the worst depression the U.S. had been in until the 1929 depression. So everybody was out of work. And the, uh, at that time, the Democratic Party was the party that believed in no government help, that everybody should be on their own. And if you can't get a job, that's your fault. And where the, uh, the Whigs came on and said the government should provide some help. So they were kind of the opposite of, of what uh, the modern parties are. Yeah, well, you have the Democratic platform in here, and it says things like the federal government has limited powers. The Constitution does not give the federal government the power to initiate and carry on internal improvements, should raise no more money than is required to defray the necessary expenses. So it does not sound like the Democratic Party today. No, they were pretty much the opposite of, of what they are today. And, and the... the uh, Democratic Party at that time was basically trying to be in the image of Thomas Jefferson, they believed, uh, of no government at all. And um, at that time, the, uh, the federal help, the, the Whigs mainly, when they talked about federal help, they talked about like building roads between states and so forth. But the, but the Democrats said, no, the states, you're on your own, no help from the federal government. But this didn't, this didn't go over well when everybody's out of work. And they're looking to the government for some, some kind of help. And, uh, and Van Buren says, uh, well, if you did as I do and work hard, there wouldn't be any panic. So that didn't help him in the, in the uh, election of 1840. Now you say also uh, here that uh, one of the raps against Martin Van Buren was he spent money to fix up the White House. Yes, that was, uh, you remember that during the War of 1812, the British uh, burned uh, the White House down. So they had to be fixed up. And they were still fixing it up all these years later. So uh, he sent a, as all presidents did, he sent a uh, proposal up to Congress for appropriations to do some fix-ups. Well, a Whig congressman took this and he went to the floor of the House and for the next two days, 
he talked about the regal splendor of the White House. And he went through the White House and listed all the things that the Van Buren supposedly had added to the White House, new wallpaper, new chairs, new fancy rugs. And he says, meanwhile, people are starving. And here is, uh, here is Van Buren uh, making his uh, house a palace. Uh, in reality, he really didn't spend any more than any other president, but uh, it was a huge issue. And of course, the, uh, the Whigs copied this speech and they sent it all over the country as, a, as uh, an election pamphlet. Now, your uh, chapter two starts with a gentleman, Thomas Elder, the city's leading banker, meeting with a newspaper editor in a building in Harrisburg, the John Harris Simon Cameron Mansion. And you visited that this morning. What is significant about that? I did. It was, it was really exciting to feel, because I know exactly what happened there as I write in the book. Right after the Democratic Convention, uh, as I mentioned, Harrison was the oldest man, 67 years old. Uh, a newspaper in Baltimore, an opposition newspaper, wrote this article saying, uh, well, Harrison is so old, if you, if you just gave him some hard cider and a pension, he'd be willing to just go sit in his log cabin for the rest of his days and sit in front of the fireplace. So this was a big slur against Harrison, and it just totally upset the plans for the, uh, for the Whigs, because they planned to make him like the Washington of the West, the general and the white horse leading his uh, troops into battle and so forth. And here now the image is this senile old, they call him a granny, uh, sitting in his log cabin. Oh, what are we going to do? And so this uh, Thomas Elder, who lived in this mansion, uh, the mansion was built by John Harris Jr., the founder of Harrisburg, named it after his father. Uh, and Thomas Elder was a banker. He was the head of the John Harris's bank, and he had bought the house from one of Harris's son. Uh, and he also was a leading strategist for the Whigs. So he invites the young newspaper editor of the Harrisburg newspaper over to his house to decide what we're going to do about this problem. And in those days, newspaper editors were actually part of the parties, either the Whigs or the Democrats. They were not objective at all. They were part very partisan. So he goes over there and knocks on the door. I was at that door this morning. He knocks on this door, this big mansion overlooking the river. It's just beautiful. And he brings him down this long hallway. And there's some rooms alongside. We're not sure which room they went into, but we figure maybe the drawing room, because it looks like a good place to drink. And he opens this bottle of expensive wine. And they said, oh, you know, we've got this problem about uh, the log cabin thing. And so finally, Thomas Elder says, you know, why don't we just use it? Take it, you know, build a log cabin or something, because a log cabin is the symbol of the common people. And there had been a lot of adverse reaction from people saying the Democrats were attacking a symbol of America. The log cabin and the hard cider was the drink of the common man. So he said, well, instead of doing that, why don't we, we use it? And at that time, the voter rolls had expanded to include a lot of people. It used to be you had to own property or something, but no more. So suddenly there were a lot of new voters there, and they were the common man. So this newspaper editor picks out, pulls out a pad of paper and a pencil, and he starts drawing a log cabin, a little one room log cabin, he's got a barrel cider sitting outside, he's got some raccoons running across the top, and the guy says, yeah, that might work. <laughs> so he goes home and he, the newspaper editor, he gets a professional drawing done. Actually, they had uh, things back in those days called transparencies, which was a four-sided four -sided thing of pictures, and they put a candles inside to light them. And they had a convention here in Harrisburg in late January uh, to 
re-nominate uh, Harrison and Tyler. So during that uh, meeting, this guy comes out carrying this transparency with this big picture of a log cabin uh, and the American flag and some other things on there. And the crowd goes nuts. They love it. And the, the speaker who was speaking when this came out just starts talking about, oh, Harrison, he's just one of the people. He's a common man, lives in a log cabin. And in modern terms, this image went viral. Uh, within a month, the log cabin, image, log cabin image was across the country. Everybody knew it. So the, the next step was to adapt, adapt it to the uh, campaign. And uh, Thomas Elder, again, was the key man in this thing. He said, he said uh, uh, I'm trying to think of the exact words, but he said, uh, passion and prejudice properly aroused and directed do as well as you know principle and, and issues in this campaign so they decided to forget issues and they went for the passion and to to the anger of the voters who were angry because they they were out of work so they created what I would call the reason I did this book was because it was the first modern campaign first grassroots they went to the people and went down to the people to the grassroots they had started with big rallies and parades starting in Columbus, Ohio, the very next month in February. And they had 30,000 people go into Columbus, Ohio, and they had this huge parade. And main feature was these log cabins on wheels, which became the staple of all these rallies across the country. How close to reality was the image of William Henry Harrison in the log cabin in Hard Cider? Not at all. <laughs> it wasn't even close. Uh, Harrison, at this point, actually lived in a mansion in Ohio, uh, and he didn't drink hard cider. Uh, his son had died as an alcoholic, and while he, he wasn't a teetotaler, uh, when he drank, he drank some very fine wines and so forth. And Harrison, you got to remember, he had no idea what these two guys were doing. Uh, so he had nothing to do with his own uh, log cabin and hard cider image. But he didn't refute it, <laughs> and he certainly uh, kept it going throughout the entire campaign. But it was a total fraud, uh, but, and some people might have known it, but uh, it was one, one of these elections where the facts didn't matter that much. People were just angry, and they wanted change. I, I have to jump back a little bit to uh, something that you wrote in your book, because I have to read this sentence. Uh, President Van Buren had already defeated Harrison in 1836, now Harrison was back for a second try, quote, like a cat which you thought you had killed yesterday, looking at, in at your window with a bloody head to scare you and wake you in the morning, wrote newspaper publisher William Cullen Bryant. I love that quote. Yeah, when I saw that quote, I, I, I got to find a way to get this into the book. <laughs> was it fun reading the old newspaper? Oh, accounts? it was. It was because they were just shameless. <laughs> they would just say anything and, and, and make up things. Uh, uh, there was only, fortunately for, for me and probably for the voters, there was only one newspaper that was really balanced. It was something called the Niles Register out of Baltimore. And they basically reprinted articles from both sides so that you could get a really good feel of what uh, both sides were, were saying on it. But for the most part, no. It, the the uh, articles in the newspaper were just wonderful from my point of view, but just totally shameful. And then you say, uh, also in the book, uh, you write about Horace Greeley as a, a newspaper man. What, what was he all about? Horace Greeley, at that time, had just started uh, a newspaper in New York called The New Yorker, had no connection to the current magazine. And uh, 
the Whig Party boss in New York, and nationally was a guy named Thurlow Weed. Uh, and uh, he wanted to run uh, his friend Henry, Henry Seward for governor of New York. So he said, you know, it'd be good to have a, a newspaper that just promoted him. So he heard about this guy, Horace Greeley, up in New York. So he went up to meet him, and he met this tall, gangly, kind of strange guy and signed him up to uh, also do this newspaper, which Greeley called the Jeffersonian. Uh, and Seward won the election. So when uh, Harrison was nominated, they decided, well, let's do the same thing with the newspaper. And Greeley agreed to do it, and he said, let's call it the Log Cabin, since that's what the campaign now is all about, since that's, of course, is where Harrison lives. So they, he created a, a newspaper, an eight-page newspaper that came out a week, every week, starting in May of 1840. And it was a wonderful newspaper, actually. Uh, of course, it was filled with propaganda about Harrison and pictures of Harrison, but not, not as he was then at 67. They showed him when he's like in his 40s or something like that. So he looked like a pretty young man, you know, vibrant young man. But he also had poems, and uh, then he started songs in the paper, and it was a huge success. Uh, they, they were selling 80,000 copies a week, which was unbelievable at that time. And it was really a, a fun read to read, and uh, the, the Democrats started their own newspapers, but they, they weren't quite up to that standard. It was a very, very heavy-headed. Uh, so Greeley uh, had a lot to do with Harrison winning. He claimed that he never met Harrison, and that he doubted that Harrison even knew who he was. But I doubt that, but uh, it, it was a, really a fun newspaper and highly successful for the log cabin campaign. Where did you find these newspapers? Well, uh, in the old days, uh, you couldn't find them. Uh, when I first looked into this, uh, I was in Washington, D.C., so I went over to the Library of Congress. You get a research card, and if you want to see the log cabin newspaper, okay, we'll make an appointment. You come in. We send somebody back. They carry, bring out this old newspaper that's falling apart. Oh, it's the actual paper. It's the actual paper. Uh, you have to put rubber gloves on if you want to read it, and you can barely turn the page. So you can imagine researching and taking notes for a whole year of the log cabin, so I forget it. When I started doing the book again, I was in Williamsburg, Virginia, right, right near where Harrison and Tyler were born. And by now, the log cabin is digitized. So I went over to the library at the College of William and Mary, pushed a button, there it was, every edition. Uh, and I could just easily take notes. So the, uh, the digital age made a huge difference in researching this book. And why would Horace Greeley have supported William Henry Harrison? He was a very liberal uh, man. Uh, he was actually anti-slavery. Uh, Harrison did not, Harrison really didn't say where he was, but he had owned slaves at one point. Uh, he, uh, but he supported the ideas because uh, he believed government should help uh, people who are out of work. Uh, so he printed a lot of stories about poor people looking for work and then printed Van Buren's harsh uh, responses to these kind of people. So it was pretty much within his own philosophy. And of course, he later went on to start the New York Herald Tribune. Van Buren was a slave owner? Uh, no, uh, Harrison was at one point. But Van Buren was not? He actually did have, I, I, did, I was surprised. He, he actually he was in New did York. have a, a slave. His, his, his mother had inherited some slaves, uh, and they, they lived in upstate New York. Uh, at that time, uh, some farmers did have slaves. They used slaves at their at tavern also. And then when ha uh, Van Buren won the election to the U.S. Senate, or, or the state Senate, 
uh, and he moved to Albany, and I found that he had a personal slave named Tom that went with him. Uh, so I was surprised that he had one. Tom used the uh, occasion to run away. <laughs> uh, Van Buren didn't really go look for him, but uh, when he turned up later in Richmond, uh, he said, if you can catch him without uh, violence, well, you know, I'll sell him to you. I don't, I don't know what happened to him. But yeah, I was surprised to see that, that uh, he actually did have a slave, although he wasn't, he wasn't particularly pro-slavery, but he believed that it was up to the states to change the law and the federal government couldn't do it. Was slavery an issue in the campaign? It was kind of an under-issue. Uh, it was always there because um, uh, the abolitionists had started uh, campaigning against it. Uh, and they finally started their own party called the Liberty Party. But even some of the Liberty Party people said that it was hard to compete against the, uh, the Harrison log cabin and hard cider campaign because it just was so enthusiastic and people got caught up in enthusiasm. Plus Harrison was kind of murky about how he, how he felt. When he, when he left home, he, he had joined a, uh, a Quaker uh, humane society that was anti-slavery, which apparently upset his father which is why he went off to study medicine. But on the campaign trail, of course, he never said much about anything, but he kind of hinted to the abolitionists that he was against it. But then he, the southern states, he kind of hinted that he was for slavery. So it was never very clear, but he did have, uh, he did have some slaves at one point that he had inherited from his mother. Now John Tyler, Harrison's running mate, was a slave owner. Tyler definitely was a slave owner. He lived in uh, Williamsburg, Virginia. Uh, and he was a states' rights man. He believed that, uh, that the federal government should never, ever interfere with the rights of the states, including the slavery issue. So he actually, when he was, became president, he brought some of his slaves to work in the White House. And he later became uh, a, a member of the Confederate uh, Congress when, he did. during he, the Civil War. After he left Former the White president. House, his, his states' rights views were so strong that he sided with the Confederacy. He had moved back near Williamsburg. He had moved into a big house, uh, which he named uh, Sherwood Forest, which seems kind of odd. I know when I first drove by, I said, mm, that's an odd name for John Tyler's house. But when he became president, uh, he pretty much didn't follow any of the Whig policies, so they kicked him out of the party. So he, he didn't have a party. So since he was considered an outlaw by his party, like Robin Hood, he named his retirement home Sherwood Forest. So anyway, when the, uh, when the uh, just before the Civil War, he actually joined a group in Washington that tried to find a solution to head off the war, but th that didn't work out, obviously. Uh, so he joined the Congress, the Confederate Congress. But when he went to the first meeting, he, he hadn't been sworn in yet. He was staying in Richmond, and that's when he got sick and died. You say in your book that uh, young Abraham Lincoln was a supporter of uh, William Henry Harrison. He was. He was. It was really. It was really fun to come across Lincoln. He was an elector for Harrison. So if Harrison won, he would cast one of the electoral votes, and he was a, a big advocate of Lincoln. He would give speeches all around from the back of wagons, and uh, he did the first uh, Douglas Stephen Douglas debate. Uh, uh, speeches at the time on because Douglas was a uh, was a Democrat. So there were Lincoln-Douglas debates about the 1840 election, and then again in 1858 when they ran for Senate, and then they ran against each other for president. Exactly. So they knew each other well. They were both from Springfield, Illinois, and so they would go around. I remember one anecdote in the book where uh, uh, Lincoln was saying all these negative things about Van Buren and Douglas. Well, that's not true. Where do you get those ideas? And he, Lincoln holds up this book, this biography of Van Buren. 
He said, well, from this book. And Douglas grabs the books and throws it in the audience and says, damn such a book. <laughs> so, so Abe did all right on that one. Was that the Davy Crockett book? No, no. Well, I don't know what it was, but there were, there were a lot of biographies of both Harrison and Van Buren. I was surprised how many there were at the time. Where did you find the Davy Crockett book? The Davy Crockett book was pretty famous back then, but um, again, you can get it online. If you go <laughs> online, you can actually read the Davy Crockett book. And he wasn't around for the 1840 campaign because he had gone to the Alamo, which you remember did not work out well for him. Uh, so he wasn't able to get out the campaign, but they certainly used his images uh, uh, during the campaign. If during the, oh, what was, uh, back in Washington, President Van Buren, how was he campaigning? He was sitting there. He didn't do anything. Uh, he, uh, the, the way you campaigned in those days was you would answer letters from voters and the letters would, uh, your responses would get printed in the paper, or you would send people out to speak. He sent his uh, vice president out. Uh, well, Richard Mentor Johnson was the president, vice president. He actually was the man who was with Harrison at the Battle of the Thames, and he was the man that was believed to have killed Tecumseh. Uh, he, never, he never had said he actually did. He had been badly injured, shot many times during that battle, and he'd be, he became the vice president. He never said he did it, but his campaign slogan was uh, Rupsy Dumpsy Johnson killed Tecumseh. So it's pretty much said he did. So he goes out. He wasn't even their nominee, though, because uh, he was too controversial. He owned a, a plantation in Kentucky, and he had lived with an African-American woman and had several children. She died, and he, he started living with another African-American woman. So they didn't nominate him uh, at the convention. Once again, they just said, here are four guys picked from these guys, and he was one of them, but they did not nominate him. The other three pretty much dropped out. So he was actually the nominee. And he campaigned a lot, and he, uh, he tried to get Van Buren to do it, but Van Buren didn't think that was proper for a president. So he sort of started what we now know as kind of the Rose Garden strategy, where the president just stays there, acts presidential, and hopes that will win him uh, votes from the voters. And you say in your book that William Henry Harrison gave the first ever campaign speech by a candidate? Yes. Uh, as I said, it was, it was considered highly improper to campaign. So conceited for you to do that. Uh, and Harrison abided by this. He stayed in his home, and he wrote some letters. Uh, but meanwhile, they're out there calling him grannies. They said he was a coward in the war. And then finally, a, a voter in New York uh, had written Harrison a letter. And he gets a letter back, and it finds out it's not from Harrison at all. It's from his campaign committee. So this becomes a huge scandal. It's like, it's like uh, something that this president has been lying to us. He's not really answering his letters. So the Democrats newspapers, oh, he's, he's being kept in an iron cage. Uh, he's general mum. He won't say anything. Well, this was just too much for Harrison. So he gets this invitation to go uh, speak at an anniversary of one of his battles up in, in northern Ohio, Fort Meigs. So he said, by golly, he's going to go. And, uh, you know, this shook up his advisors because they said they don't want him saying anything. Oh, it was his decision. His decision. And, and they couldn't stop him. Uh, but... We go back to the log cabin and hard cider theme. So instead of packing his silk hat that he normally would wear, he put, takes his farmer's hat. He takes his plain clothes, and he starts off on his trip, which is a long way. He's way down in southern Ohio. They're going northern Ohio. Gets on a stagecoach, 
the wake spread the word that he's traveling and the big crowds come out and he's the first candidate. He has to shake hands with people. His hand got so sore, he put a glove on it. The time he got to Columbus, which is in the middle of the state. So he gets to Columbus, he goes over to the Tippecanoe cabin. They had put Tippecanoe cabins in every city. And he sees people there and he goes to the hotel, right in the middle of town. So he's leaving the next morning and there's a crowd outside. So he starts talking to him a little bit and pretty soon he was giving a speech. The very first speech was in June of 1840. He gives his full speech answering his critics saying he's not kept in an iron cage uh, and that uh, he does hint that he lives in a log cabin. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, they love it. So he goes on to this other speech in, in Fort Meigs and there's a crowd there of I don't know, like 20,000 people. And uh, he gives this major speech and he's liking this. So he starts giving speeches on his way back to uh, his home in Ohio and he ended up giving more than two dozen speeches. Some of these speeches uh, drew over 100,000 people. I mean, 100,000 people in 1840, the entire country was like the size of New York State. How would they have heard him? That's a good question. They, a lot of them probably did not hear him. Uh, but uh, apparently they, they, uh, you could hear him pretty good because this was so unusual. The crowds were like quiet. I mean, you could hear a pin drop because they had never seen a presidential candidate speak before and people would come from miles around. They had 100,000 people in Dayton and Dayton was like 3,000 people population. But they came from all over the, the country. People rode on horseback, by wagon, uh, just to see this. And they could see that he was not the young man <laughs> that they had pictured. But he was still kind of lively and he would ride up to the speaker stand on his white horse, whitey. And uh, so he was still, still pretty exciting to see, especially since nobody had ever seen this before. And uh, uh, so this is how he made history and of course, that history is last. You couldn't imagine a, a campaign today without the, the candidate speaking. I want to ask about that because the subtitle of your book talked about how the campaign changed presidential elections forever. From that point on, were campaigns like that or did future campaigns relapse to the previous, the old way of doing it? Uh, uh, both. They, 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 it took a while for that to catch on in terms of the, the speaker the candidate going out to speak, but eventually uh, when Lincoln ran, Lincoln was the great speaker, he didn't, he didn't go speaking when he ran, but his opponent Douglas did. Douglas went to every state in the country uh, speaking. And then Horace Greeley ran for president four years later against Grant, and he, he took the first uh, whistle-stop train trip across the country, uh, which wasn't that big at the time, uh, and they would, every stop, and sometimes it would be like, a minute because it would just stop to get some water and <laughs> he'd be on the back cart, back of the train uh, giving a speech and then whiskey, was, it was gone, you know, but, uh, and he lost. But, uh, so eventually that did become the norm. They did almost immediately go to the grassroots rallies and parades uh, and uh, other changes. One of the ones we probably want to talk about is uh, how women got involved in this. Yeah, you talk about how they uh, talk to women's groups, campaign to women's groups. And why would they do that? Because women weren't allowed to vote. Women were not allowed to vote. In fact, it, I, like the speaking, it was considered highly improper for women to even become involved in politics. You know, they were, they were too tender for that. It's too rough for the, for the women. Well, the Whigs decided that the, the women could help them win. They couldn't vote, but they could persuade their husbands to vote, and they could persuade their, their uh, boyfriends to vote. So they, uh, they handed out things like uh, at rallies, you'd see women waving handkerchiefs from the side. 
Uh, and uh, this was not by accident because the advancement went around giving out free handkerchiefs to the ladies at these rallies. And the newspapers would write about all the women waving their handkerchiefs. And in Baltimore, one woman waved a red petticoat from a window. And, and young women, be, uh, the single women, started wearing these little things across uh, the top saying, uh, wake men or none. And they made their uh, boyfriends vow to vote wig or they would stop saying them. And wives tried to persuade their husbands to vote. Uh, and actually, one, one Whig woman who didn't have to be persuaded was Mary Todd in, in Illinois. Uh, she had moved there with her sister at the time Abraham Lincoln was campaigning for Harrison. Uh, and actually, he, Lincoln was working with her brother-in-law. So she met Lincoln at a Whig party. And she, but she was already a big Whig supporter. Uh, and then, of course, they ended up getting married. Did you come across a lot of memorabilia from the campaign? I mean, campaign buttons and sashes and things like I that? I didn't personally, uh, but uh, it was an incredible number of, and again, this was part of their strategy. Uh, you know, we, we've often heard of selling presidential candidates like soap, uh, but there really was a typical new shaving soap. There were uh, plates with uh, log cabins pictures on it. There were snuff boxes with Harrison's pictures on it. There were uh, pictures with Harrison's pictures on it. Uh, anything, shaving, razors, everything. And they were all Harrison, or they were log cabin. They had posters depicting General Harrison and his great victories. Uh, there were cartoons against uh, Van Buren. Uh, some beautiful drawings of supposedly Harrison, as, again as a nice young man, by a guy named Courier, who later joined with a guy named Ives to become Courier and Ives. But these beautiful uh, color like lithographs showing a young William Henry Harrison as a dashing leader, as a general, as just a, a handsome man. So marketing, again, it all began in this campaign, and of course it has never stopped. And it was only the Whigs who were doing this during this campaign? Were the Democrats doing anything like this? When the Whigs did this kind of thing, the Democrats tried to copy them, but they weren't very good at it. Uh, there were some Van Buren buttons and uh, handkerchiefs, but not, not very many. And there were some anti-Harrison cartoons, but it seemed like most of the cartoonists were Whigs because they were, they were anti-Van Buren. So for the most part, uh, the Democrats pretty much stuck to the old script, much to their chagrin. You quote some of the campaign songs in there. How, how prominent were the campaign songs? These were incredible. This, this, was, a song, this was a campaign that was put to song. Uh, because it helped, it helped raise the entertainment value of the rallies. In the very first one in Columbus, Ohio, there was um, the people in Marysville, Ohio, just north of Columbus, built their log cabin on wheels, they pulled by horses to Columbus, and a local man wrote a song called the Log Cabin Song uh, about the Buckeye tree, because they built them from the Buckeye tree. And this, they not only sang the song, but they had printing presses on, on the wagons and they would print up copies of these songs and hand them out to the crowd and they would start singing. And pretty soon this was across the country. The biggest one actually again took place in Columbus. Uh, one of the big things in the parade was this big rolling ball about 10 feet high or 15 feet high in some cases. Uh, and had, they would roll it down the street and from town to town and had pro-Harrison sayings on it. That was start of the phrase, keep the ball rolling. So this young jeweler from a town nearby saw this. He was so excited 
uh, and he belonged to the Tippecanoe Glee Club back in his hometown of Sainsville. So he went home and he wrote this song, uh, The Great Commotion, about keeping the ball rolling, and the chorus was for Tippecanoe and Tyler too. And obviously that caught on. It was a chorus to a song, became the most famous slogan in history for a presidential campaign. And it was just one of hundreds, and probably thousands of songs. Most of them were written to popular songs like the National Anthem or Old Lang Syne, and just new words to it. But it was, it was a, a, a just part of the whole campaign that, uh, that you would have even like, they would hire people, singers to jump into stagecoaches and sing these songs as the stagecoach was going along like a traveling commercial. So it's an intricate part of the campaign. How long was the campaign going hot and heavy? We're used to it now going a year and a half or two years. How long were they actively campaigning? Well, the uh, Harrison was nominated in December. Van Buren actually wasn't renominated until uh, May. Uh, the campaign probably started with that rally in Columbus in February. It was Washington's birthday, February 22nd, 1840. So I would, I would pin it to the start in February which is, used to be sort of the typical campaign from, you know, February to uh, November. Uh, and uh, so, yeah, I would say from February to November at that time. And election day was November, beginning of November, like it is now? Well, there wasn't one election day. There were a bunch of election days, and they were around that time. And the states would vote first, and they would elect people, and then the, then the uh, uh, federal elections would take place. So around that time, from late October to like November 10th were the elections. How did people vote? Uh, they voted uh, any way they wanted to, even if it wasn't legal. Uh, <laughs> Are you writing the book about voter intimidation? Yeah, well, in, in, in those days, um, almost anything went in terms of getting people to vote or getting them not to vote. Uh, so some of the parties would send out these bullies uh, to the polls, and uh, matter of fact, uh, sitting in Harrisburg here, uh, there was another editor of a, another Harrisburg newspaper who went to vote, and he got beat up. He nearly got his ear torn off by these guys because they knew he was going to vote for the Whigs. Uh, in Springfield, Illinois, uh, Lincoln was told that there was some bully in front of the polls uh, stopping people from voting. So he went over there, and Lincoln was a pretty big guy, you know, about six foot four. So he persuaded the man to leave, and he later lamented that he didn't get in the fight because he wanted to beat him up. So election day, um, well, you have the results in here, a chart showing all the state's popular vote and electoral vote. And from this, I learned that Pennsylvania went for Harrison over Van Buren by 351 votes out of about 300,000 cast. It was very close in Pennsylvania. And again, it was hard to know what was going on in the day. I have a story in there about uh, a man when he was a young boy was sent out to get all the papers. In Pen he lived in Pennsylvania, and he got the papers. And uh, the uh, Whig papers said that Harrison had won by 1,000 votes. Uh, but the Democratic papers said that, no, Van Buren had won by 1,000 votes. So they didn't really know uh, until several days later. And it turned out to be very close. Uh, and Pennsylvania was a big state and uh, Harrison, uh, Harrison pulled it out. Uh, however, it's interesting to note that uh, despite Lincoln's efforts in Illinois, uh, Illinois went for Van Buren. And you also say under here, South Carolina, no popular vote. No, they, they, uh, they didn't believe in trusting the voters to this uh, task. So they were the last one where the, uh, the state legislature uh, decided uh, who got their electoral votes. 
So uh, Van Buren uh, or Harrison won pretty handily, but was it was his win regional? Was it mostly one section or the other of the states? Well, he won by wide margin in the electoral college. The the popular vote was a lot closer, uh, and some people speculate that there was some backlash to this kind of carnival atmosphere of his campaign. Uh, but he uh, he won the, a lot of the big states. He won in the north. He didn't do as he lost he lost Virginia, even though he and Tyler both were originally from there. Uh, so he mainly did his best in the north. He didn't do as well in the south, uh, and uh, uh, but his electoral vote was uh, runaway. Did he show any signs of ill health prior to becoming president? He claims not. He uh, he seemed to uh, any time he wrote somebody he seemed to add a P.S. I'm in very good health, <laughs> and um, when he got to Washington. Um, his health, it wasn't that his physical health was that bad, but it was, it, the campaign was long and enduring. Uh, plus, he campaigned, no other president had done that. And it wasn't easy. I mean, you're riding stagecoaches, you're going over bumpy, you didn't have expressways, you had bumpy roads you were going over. And then he had to go from Ohio all the way to Washington, took steamboats, took bumpy rides, finally took a train into Washington, arriving on his 68th birthday. Uh, so he's tired when he gets there. Plus, uh, in those days, the, when you won their presidency, everybody wanted a job, and especially this year when everybody was out of work. So even back in Ohio, the, the job seekers started pounding on his door. He gets to Washington, you're not even safe in the White House because back then, anybody could walk into the White House. So he'd go into a room and there'd be all these job seekers sitting there. And he said, you know, he wrote people said basically he didn't have time to go to the bathroom because he had all these people wanting jobs. So it was a very wearing, in addition to taking on the challenges of the presidency. So right now the president is inaugurated January 20th, but in Harrison's case it was March. Used to be back 4th. in March, mm -hmm. March 4th. Uh, so first ever inaugural parade. Yes. Uh, he, he, he goes there and they're going to have the inauguration. So for... They go from the White House, while he was staying at a hotel, and he goes up to uh, Capitol Hill. So they decide to do just like his campaign. They have a big parade. Uh, they have the log cabins on wheels. Uh, the, they had a new carriage for him to ride in. He said, no, he didn't want to ride in it. He's going to ride his horse, Old Whitey, down Pennsylvania Avenue. Uh, it was a cold and windy day, but he didn't wear a hat or coat. And he did have a hat on as he rode his horse, but he kept doffing it as he <laughs> went up the road. Uh, so he had a parade up to the, uh, the Capitol, uh, and the crowd was the biggest in history. And just the place was inundated, and waiting for this president to come out uh, in this really cold, blustery day. And he comes out for his speech. He's not wearing a hat or coat or anything. It's freezing. Uh, and he gives the longest inaugural speech in history, one hour and 45 minutes. And I read it. And I can tell you it's probably the most boring inaugural <laughs> speech in history. But he goes on and on. And interesting, he wasn't actually sworn in until his very last sentence. He gave his speech. The uh, chief justice was sitting next to him. And he gets to his last sentence. He stops. Chief justice comes up and gives him the oath of office. And then he closes. And then they have another parade back down to the White House. Now, uh, you, you gave away the ending at the beginning that he died in, uh, very shortly after taking office, but sort of the thing you hear about him is not only that he was Tippecanoe, but that he caught a cold during his inaugural address and 
died, but in your book you say he was taking brisk walks exactly. after he was Yeah, that's, was that is the legend. That First of all, that, but a lot of the stories say it was raining during that day. It wasn't raining, uh, but it was very cold. Uh, but he was fine. He went to three inaugural balls that night. Uh, and uh, so he moves into the White House, and every morning he goes out for a walk. He goes out to the market. You know, the President of the United States is walking down. He had no Secret Service or anything like that. And he walks down the street, and one day he, he had just gotten a haircut in the White House, and he goes out and uh, gets caught in a rainstorm again. He didn't, it was February, but he didn't have, uh, it was, uh, actually it would be March, right? It would be March. He didn't have his uh, hat and coat on, and he got caught in the rain. He went back, and he didn't change his clothes. So he came down with a cold, and he calls the doctor, and then uh, he seems okay. He didn't go to bed. And then the next night, at 4 in the morning, He's feeling pretty bad, and the doctor comes in. Did the doctors kill him? There is some speculation to that point. Uh, in those uh, days, the, the popular methods were not exactly what we would do today. So he gets worse and worse. They tried to bleed him, which was the, the thing which probably killed George Washington. Uh, but he's so old and frail, they decide not to do that. So they do everything. They, they blister him. They, they put these hot cups on him and try to get the blood flowing. And they give him all kinds of enemas, and they give him all kinds of medicines, and pretty much beat up his old body. And he finally passed away uh, after only 31 days in office. I wish we could keep talking because there's so much more about this we could talk about, but we're out of time. We've been speaking with Ronald Schaefer. He is the author of this book, The Carnival Campaign, How the Rollicking 1840 Campaign of Tippecanoe and Tyler II Changed Presidential Elections Forever. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. I loved it. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. We'd like to hear from you. Our email address is pabooks at pcntv.com. Like us on Facebook to learn more about PA Books.